This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies that our, with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Great, thanks Paul. So we're, we're looking at, this week at uh, the spirit of adoption, so that's your title, spirit of adoption. Let's uh, go through. Um, I think belonging is a really important thing for us. Um, in, t- in fact, we often find our identity in, in kind of who we belong to and where we belong. So, you know, university people first week of term, like to buy that hoodie that says which university they're from. We all like to kind of belong uh, to something. In fact, uh, I saw this quote from a, a, this, she's a blogger actually, and she was quoted in another blog that I read, and she said, I, I think the need to belong is a strong one. And by belonging, I mean experiencing the peace that comes from being part of something bigger than ourselves. So we have this individualistic sense in ourselves where we feel, no, I'm my own individual and, and I cry out my own identity. But actually, if you look at society and you look at us, we're, we're longing to belong. We're, we're connecting in ways that we think, no, I'm desperately being individual, but actually belonging. I, I was particularly struck by this when I went to, um, uh, well, I didn't go. I dropped my daughter at uh, Reading Festival, top right. That is not my daughter. I just... I just um, Googled Reading Festival, and although these these kind of uh, rock chicks here are all very individualistic, they all kind of look the same. And what struck me is there is a definite uniform for Reading Festival goes, uh, which is short jeans, wellies, and dyed blonde hair. Um, so my do- my daughter did extremely well to fit in there, expressing her individuality. Or bottom right, here's another festival. Well, you know which festival that is. What is the distinguishing mark of belonging in that festival? 
Tweed. Yes, I'm obviously, I keep feeling occasionally the need to buy a tweed jacket to feel Cheltenham. Uh, uh, my, my brother lives in Middlesbrough and has a tweed jacket, and I don't think that's very Middlesbrough. And I don't have a tweed jacket, and I, and I feel uh, there's occasional weeks in March where I think, I need a tweed jacket. And brogues. I've got the brogues, but they're looking a bit shabby. Um, or what about marks of belonging top left? That definitely says I belong to a particular group of people, doesn't it? Top left. Uh, the skirt-wearing clergy. Um, I, I, I wasn't going to... I didn't know how to be rude about church, so I thought, well, I'd be rude about something that's not our church. But, uh, but there's definitely a sense of belonging. So the, the kind of dog collar is I'm part of a particular group. And that's... It's helpful. I mean, I know guys who are vicars and they who wear their dog collars around. And they say, yeah, people will stop them in the street and say, oh, could you talk to me? And it's a really good gospel opportunity. So let's not knock it. But actually, there's a, definitely a sense of I belong to this particular group. And, 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 you know, that's important to me. And obviously, at God First, if you're on church app, you belong. You don't need to turn up. You don't need to rock up. But if you're on church app, I think you're in. <laughs> I think you belong. So if you're not on church app, I really, you must get on church app because then I can look down the list and say, you oh, know, they were away. Oh, they were there. Great. They were away. And it just kind of messes with my head. But, but there's definitely signs of belonging that, that we all have. I mean, you could probably, um, you could probably think of some others. You could think of signs of belonging. So I'm going to watch Leeds against Newcastle this afternoon. And obviously the sign of belonging, if you're a Leeds fan, is in the middle of winter to take off your shirt. I don't mean just your shirt and leave your vest. No, to be bare-chested. And that's how you show you belong. Obviously, I won't be doing that. Uh, but there's lots of signs of belonging. But actually, we've all got one sign of belonging that's um, pretty obvious. I was trying to find a picture that, wasn't, that was appropriate. You type in flesh on Google, and it's like a dangerous search history thing. But we all have got that. You can all pinch a little bit of flesh that says, oh, we all belong. We all, you all belong. So in one sense, we all belong to, to each other. There's, a, there's an ultimate sense of belonging that comes from, from being in the flesh. Uh, and uh, we've talked about um, in Romans about what being in the flesh means. It doesn't just mean that you have skin and bone. It means that you're kind of you're, you're embodied humanity. You're, you, the, you, you have the same traits as the first human. The first humans, Adam and Eve, you have their traits. And the bottom line is, although they're tr- made in the image of God, so when you look at yourself, you probably think in the morning, I am made in the image of God. Uh, sin is destroying that all the time. So I'm struggling with the aging process. I'm realizing that actually instead of one set of bags, I'm getting bags under my bags. And that really is bad. <laughs> but the reason why that is happening is not just because of the aging process. That's happening because you all share the same flesh as me and flesh that sins will die. I am experiencing the dying process in my hip, in my face. We're all experiencing that. And that's what Paul has talked about through his letter. He said that you're in Adam, you're in Man United, you have that same belonging called fleshness, and you've all got it. But actually, what Paul has been doing since Romans chapter 5 onwards, he's been saying, no, actually, there's a new type of belonging that I want to talk to you about. And he talks about, in chapter 5, about belonging to Christ. Instead of belonging to Adam, whose one act of rejecting God has affected all of us, and we all do that. No, you belong to Jesus, whose one act of crucifixion, of obedience on the cross, has created a new humanity. So a new sense of belonging. So in our chapter, uh, and we read it last week, but I just wanted to scroll on back and then kind of reboot from there. Paul says, uh, you are in the realm or the kingdom or the land or the place of the Spirit. That's where you belong. That's your home. If indeed 
God's Spirit lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. In other words, the boundary marker for being a Christian is that you have the Spirit. Now, obviously, that's kind of difficult because I can do this and say, yeah, I've got, the, I've got flesh. How do I know I've got the Spirit? Lots of people have lots of different ways of saying that. And depending on your church culture or whether you've not any church culture at all, you probably think, well, how do you know if you've got the Spirit? How do you know if you belong? How do you know if you're a Christian? If this is the mark of, of, of being a Christian, how do you know? And Paul's going to answer that as we go. But, but, there's, but the one sense is that it's, it's not just some little thing. Like, you know, some people, I could have had sense of belonging. People put their hands up in meetings. Oh, well, that means they've got the Spirit. Or they carry a big black Bible. That means they've got the Spirit. Or maybe they bring a contribution. Or they do this or that. Or they maybe carry leadership. And all those things you might think are markers of having the Spirit. But actually, it's much, something much more simple. But something much more profound. In fact, um, uh, John Stott, uh, who died a few years ago, a great Bible teacher, he says in his commentary on Romans, it says, the hallmark... The mark of belonging of the authentic believer is the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. Indwelling sin is the mark of the children of Adam, yet the privilege of the children of God is to have the indwelling Spirit. And so we kind of rushed through those verses, and I thought I wanted to just scroll back a little bit because it's really important that we understand what does it mean. So I'm going to ask you just to, uh, and you might not have an answer, how do you know that you're a Christian. How do you know that you have the indwelling spirit? Turn to the person next to you. Okay. Does anybody want to play? It's a small hall I can feel in teacher mode. Uh, anybody want to give me an answer? Try not to be too clever. Helen, uh, Andy's pointing at Helen in true abdication of manhood style. Go on, uh, uh, Helen. Good, you might start to bear the characteristics of, of Jesus. And I don't mean wearing a white cloth, robes and long hair, but the kind of spiritual characteristics that the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. You might start to show those. Great. Anybody else want to say? Yeah, Abby. Uh, okay, you've asked for it. I've asked. I want to be a Christian, so therefore I'm, I'm believing I am. I'm believing God's made me alive. Okay, anybody else want to play? We don't need any more, but any more? Need some more? Okay. Yes, so he promises it to everybody that believes. So what we read is, Paul says, if you have the Spirit, you're a Christian. Flip it over, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit. Now I've come from different kind of groups where it says, well, you kind of had an idea where you believed in Jesus with your head, and then a little bit later on, you received the Holy Spirit. That's not what Paul's teaching here. Paul's saying, no, you, you trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit kind of helps you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that something happens in your heart and changes you and you repent. You say, I don't want to follow that way anymore. I want to follow you, Jesus. And you become alive. But what this second stuff is, no, then there's a sense of ongoing. And that's kind of, I just want to pick that out. Paul actually in the, in the passage goes, um, he does these, if you look, if you like Paul's writings, he likes to do his if then. If you're a Christian, then. If you're a Christian, then you've got the fruit of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, then you've, you've got the Spirit because you've asked, or you, 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 whatever. His if-thens are interesting. But if Christ is in you, you're a Christian, then, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. How does that feel tangible? 
Even though your body is subject to death because of sin, your spirit gives life because of righteousness. Does that say we're not going to die? It's not saying that. What it's saying is there's, there's something at work in you that's making you alive. He makes it much clearer in the next verse. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because the spirit lives in you. What is the power at work in you? What's the power that's at work in you that, that proves you're a Christian, that's, that, that says you're a Christian? I think it's the power of Jesus' resurrection. And that is really interesting because, well, how do you know that that's happening? Part of it is you believe, but part of it is you feel that flow of, yes, and we're going to go on why. There's a cry where it says, yeah, I believe you're my father. But you have that resurrection power. So living the Christian life, if you're trying to do it by hard work or efforts, how do you know you've got this resurrection life living in you? And, it, and, and it's something that's powerful, but it's intangible. So what happens is we think about how to live the Christian life. We're very aware of our flesh, but we're not aware. But we need to be aware that actually the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. So I know that we've talked about how do you beat sin? And you can think, well, I try harder and think better. But actually, that's, that's part of it. But actually, there's more to that. There's the power of Jesus, the power that raised Jesus' dead body from the grave. That's working in you. And Paul's saying, that's what's happening. If you're a Christian, you've got the Spirit of God, and you know that because life is coming in you. And it feels quite intangible. But actually, that's the important thing to believe. No, the risen life of Jesus is in me. I'm not trying on my own. I'm not trying to do my best. I'm not trying to whistle a happy thought or, or kind of just think, well, is it going to be okay when I die? No, the power of the risen Jesus is working in you. And you should feel that. So when you sin, you're working against that because you should feel this kind of updraft that's taking you towards God. This the resurrection power that took Jesus out of the grave and raised him to the heavenly places. Paul elsewhere says, we've been done the same thing. We've been taken out of death and seated with Christ in heavenly places. You'd find that, that your life is drawn upwards to God. Paul prays actually this in another letter in Ephesians. He, he says this, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you might know. He wants you to know something that's going to help you to live the Christian life. His incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. What is the power that's at work in you if you're a Christian? It's the dead-raising power of Jesus. And Paul is saying, I pray that you'd know that. I pray that you'd see that. I pray that the eyes of your heart be open, that you'd see that. So that we need to be a spirit-filled community. And that might mean, yes, you raise your hands, or it might mean you speak in tongues, or it might mean you prophesy, or it might mean that you have the characteristic of Jesus. But the, you, you need to have this, we need to believe that, no, the upflow of God's spirit that's raising Jesus from the dead is at work in us. So if you're a Christian and you've just stayed the same from the moment that you become a Christian, then you need more of God's Spirit. In fact, Paul says, don't be filled with too much wine or don't be drunk with too much wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That be filled with the Spirit is keep on being filled. Yes, you're filled with the Spirit. There's something that makes you become a Christian. 
It's not just you filling a card. Now something, God does something in your heart that makes you become a Christian. But he's saying, keep on being filled. Keep on being filled. Keep on being filled. It's not that you didn't have the Spirit here. You did. How on earth did you become a Christian? But keep on being filled. Keep on being filled. Keep on being filled. And that's so important because we've tended to divide church into those people who say, well, we do the Bible. And those people say, no, we do the Spirit. But the Bible is saying, be filled with the Spirit. Keep on being filled with God. Keep on having the resurrection life of God at work in you. And when you have each morning in your your time with God, you need to be thinking, God, fill me with your spirit. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. So you're not scared of people when they say, oh, you're a Christian. Or you're not struggle when sin comes. You think, oh, yes, I must go there. No, there's a risen power of Jesus that created a new age at work in you. And you need to keep on being filled with that friend of mine called Andrew Wilson, not Andrew Wilson here, who we love deeply, but a friend called Andrew Wilson as a a theologian, he talks about there's two approaches to the Holy Spirit. You can either be a cat or a hippo. Now, if you see the picture of the cat, what's the cat's uh, feeling about being in the water? It does not like it. It's like, I did that water thing once and never ever again. You know, I could have found a picture uh, with a cat on the side of a bath. It's standing on the side of a bath and the the headline went, nope. (laughs) It's like, no, I do not want to go in that water. It's almost like, I did that once. I did that emotional response to Jesus, that mind and emotion response to Jesus. And that's me done. I'm not doing that again. Sorry, no. And you're like a cat. You got dipped in it once and you think, well, that made me a Christian and that's fine. But actually, we don't want to be like cats. We want to be like hippos. But what you find about hippos is that on land, they're lumbering about, they're quite clumsy and they don't really cope And because it's almost like they need the... Although they're land animals, they're made for a different place. And when you're walking around in the world... And you're trying it on your own effort. You're kind of lumbering around like a big fat hippo trying to do the Christian life and you feel rubbish. And then suddenly the big fat hippo into the water you go and you're swimming around like the BBC adverts. (laughs) And it's like, hey, this is where I'm supposed to be. And and, and I thought it's it's a good image because hippos, if you're trying to carry all your weight... On your own, if you're trying to do the Christian life on your own, carrying your own weight, no, get into the realm of the Spirit. Get into the place where you're supposed to be, the new place where you live, and go be like a hippo. Well, what are we, church? Are we cats or hippos? Because I know sometimes, and I am keep getting on you about this, that I say, why don't you come for the front and get prayed for? And you go, I'm a cat, I did that once, I'm not doing that again. Man, I don't want to get emotional again. No, 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 please. Yeah, I believe, I know I'm a Christian. No, the resurrection power of Jesus is available for you to be filled with the Spirit. Who doesn't want some of that? Now, I know we've made it, we've got in white suits and gone, and it's going to have you think, wow, I don't want any of that, like gold from the ceiling and stuff. You know, and people have said, that's the Spirit. Well, it might be, it might not be. But actually, more fundamentally, do you need to be filled with the resurrection power of Jesus? Yes, you do. And how often do you need to be filled all the time. The hippos are in the water all the time. God first, we must not be like a dried up water pool. You know, where you just feel like God first, it's like treading through mud. Now we need to be this place where God and we come and swim. Paul kind of doesn't do cats and hippos. He's actually much more profound than that. 
He does sons or orphans. Paul says, all those who are led by the Spirit, it's the same thing. Led by living, the Spirit living in you, filled with the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit, that's Luke's language. Paul's language is have or, fi- or filled with or Christ living in you. It's all the same experience, just different ways. If you are led by the Spirit, in other words, if you're a Christian, if you're led by the Spirit, you are the sons of God. Let me just say about sons, the reason why Paul uses sons here is for, for a particular reason. It's not that he doesn't include the daughters. Because elsewhere in this chapter he talks about children, children, children. But he's using sons for a particular reason, which we'll come to in a moment. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery. We had that this morning, this kind of chained up. We talked about it in Romans 6, this slavery. I feel like I can't, I'm just a slave to my sin. I'm a slave to fear. I'm feeling useless. You didn't feel that spirit of slavery. You received a spirit of adoption by whom you cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, this is Paul's proof that the resurrection life of Jesus is in you. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're God's children. And if we're children, then we're heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, there's something inside you that when you pray Father, it's not just a word you learn at school at the start of a prayer. But it's, it's a fundamental identity. It's a fundamental belonging. Our Father. That's how you know. You don't know it by your good works. You don't know it by anything that, that looks spiritual. You know it by that simple, fundamental thing. God's my Father. Now, we use this, Paul uses sonship for a particular reason. In fact, adoption in our culture is, is mostly associated with babies that aren't wanted and therefore shame. So we have less than 1% of babies adopted. Obviously, that's because of the prevalence of abortion these days. But, but we have 1% of children adopted. And if you're adopted, you might be adopted. You might be here and you might be adopted. You might feel shame about that. You might feel that my natural parents didn't want me. And I was picked up by someone else. And you might feel shame about that. And, 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 and embarrassed about it. But in Roman culture, it wasn't a sense of shame. What would happen is it's much more to do with uh, a sense of a, 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 an emperor or a ruler or a patrician, a wealthy person looking for an heir. Looking for an heir. And what they would do is they'd often find, uh, maybe sometimes they'd take a slave. And they'd take a slave and say, you're just an amazing slave. If you've been Ben Hur back at the cinema, did anyone see that? It's a great film. Watch the old version. Um, but Ben Hur is a, a galley slave, and he saves his master, the, a general, and then serves his master. Eventually, the master makes him uh, his son. Takes on the name and the estate. That would happen. In fact, Roman emperors. We've had about five by AD fifty-seven Roman emperors. Every single one did not, was not succeeded by their natural sons. They are all succeeded by somebody that they chose. You'd be a great emperor. So in the film Gladiator, remember at the beginning, if you know the film, he's saying to, this gen, he's saying to, to Maximus, uh, I'd like you to be my son, because this one I'm not having. But there's this much more this sense of being chosen for purpose, chosen to be adopted and given wealth and honor and status. 
And so when Paul says you've been adopted as sons, he's not saying, well, nobody wanted you, so God picked you up as a kind of backthought. No, what he's saying is God has picked you up, even though he loves his son, he's chosen you to be his son. He's chosen you to be with him, to be his sons. And the reason why he uses the word sons is because they never did it for daughters in Roman times. But God is much broader than Roman culture. He says daughters as well. Come on. Now, I'd struggled. I knew this. And you might know it. But I'd struggled with, with actually believing it. And if you, you may have, some of you may have heard this story before. But I went on this Father Heart Conference. We rock up. It's in like a cow shed. I kid you not. In, in Dorset. And he had one keyboard player and he had open-toed sandals and socks. Uh, and, you know, and it was like, just, oh, just everything about it was just, oh, this is not going to be good. <laughs> you know, it was far too much cheesecloth shirts around and everybody hugging each other. And that was all fine. But anyway, what, so, so, <laughs> so I kind of go into the tea and coffee and I'm thinking, all right, okay, we'll see what happens. I sit down in the tea and coffee and I meet a couple of friends of mine who I used to live in their house in Bath, so they must be about 85 now. But when I was a student, I lived in their house in Bath, and it was John and Alison. I went, hey, amazing, how come you're here? Chat, 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 chat. What do you do, John and Alison? John and Alison said, oh, we work with street orphans in the Philippines in Manila. I said, wow, that's amazing. So, well, what do you do? They said, well, we're trying to get these street orphans kind of adopted into families. Right, I thought, it's great. And they said, you know what's, what the interesting thing is? When, when street orphans are adopted into families, that, that they show two characteristics. They have this notice me, pick me, affirm me, 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 me kind of attitude that flows from the rejection that they face. They have this kind of insecurity, pick me, pick me, pick me, notice me, notice me, love me, love me attitude. Which actually Paul, John and Alison said is re- was really endearing. Because they want to be cuddled and they want to be loved. But they've also got this other attitude, this, because they're on the street, because they're fighting for themselves and looking after themselves, and, and nobody's looking after them, so they have to look after themselves. They have this self-sufficiency that, that grafts for everything, that fights its corner, that takes what it can, lets no one close, driven by this desire to survive. And so they're explaining this probably better than I've explained it, but it's just a conversation over coffee. And I'm thinking it's amazing what they're doing. You know, so they bring street orphans into a house and the street orphans are stealing things and sh- f- throwing things around and having bad tempers because they used to fight in their own corner but yet at the same time they're saying, love me, love me, love me. And I guess if you work with vulnerable kids in the UK, you'll probably see a bit of that. So anyway, we're going to this... Me- I-, I-, I thought it was really interesting, a random conversation. So we're going to this group, there's about 50 people and we have a little worship time. And I just felt like the Spirit of God just like on me, and I'm thinking, oh, so anyway, so I lay down on the floor, and loads of people came up to me and went, oh, you're a soaker, oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, I went, okay, fair enough, anyway, I lay on the floor, and I felt God say this to me, Howard, are you a spiritual orphan, are you a spiritual orphan, that you've not realized that I'm your father, so you've got this, love me, love me, love me, thing about you and you've also got that don't you fight me because I smash your face <laughs> and you think yeah I know that about you Howard that's we, we just you know keep a distance but I thought actually it's probably true for lots of us and I lay on the floor and just thought yes it's true these are my characteristics these might be yours 
demands attention, needs approval, fears openness and vulnerability, struggles to belong, demands attention. If you're a spiritual orphan, if you don't know God's your father, that is you. You'll have some, if not all. I, I, I've got the one on, on, in red. I just want to be affirmed. Tell me I'm great, please. I mean, most of you have got that as your love language, but you might have an insecurity base. Most guys have got that. But you know, there's, who are you listening to? Whose affirmation are you after? It's probably all the wrong places and all the wrong things. It's probably you lot, which is nice. But actually, I need to have it from a different place. There's that insecurity about spiritual orphans. And there's also that, sorry, my wise slipped there, self-sufficiency. So they fight for their right. So they see churches are kind of like, or any organization as a ladder to be climbed. You know, so I become a school governor and I think, right, I want to be in the next level. I want to be the chair of a committee. I want to be on the chair's committee. I want to be the vice chair. I want to be the chair. You know, I'm always, I I feel in myself I can always be climbing. You know, a plant a church, a bigger church, a bigger church. I can always be climbing. And you can do that. You you might fight for your position. You might need approval. You might fear self-disclosure. You might feel lonely at times or distant from others. Or you might be grasping, always after stuff. Or you might be validated by your performance. So spiritual orphans are either addicted to approval or work addicts. So if you've got either of those traits, it might be that you've not really let the fact that God is your father drop right down in there. Because actually, if you're working, you're building your identity as... I work hard. I work hard. There's nothing wrong with hard work. Paul says the grace of God taught me to work hard. There's nothing wrong with hard work, but actually you're trying to build your identity there. I've done something. I've achieved something. I'm hard working. Or you might have this, people love me. I'm popular. I'm whatever. And it's interesting. It kind of reflects on what kind of God you've got. I'll go through this quick. So if God is your father, you're validated by grace. His unconditional favor. If you're the orphan God, God, if you think God is something else than God is a father, then you're validated by performance. If God is your father, there's an intimacy that you should be looking for. But actually, if, you have got, if you're an orphan, then you find intimacy with God and intimacy with others difficult. If you have God is your father, then you're self-giving, as Glenn spoke about two weeks ago. Or if God is not your father, you're always after the grabbing. I want the next thing. If God is your father, you're humble. If not, you fight for your rights. If God is your father, then you know he adopts you as a son. But if he's not, you use people. God is your father, then he reveals himself in you, you risk openness. But if not, then you don't want people to really know you. Jesus goes to the cross, but we fear any kind of vulnerability or struggle. He's faithful, but we struggle to trust. Because we're orphans and we fight in our corner. Who can I trust? I'm on my own. God as a father, he loves his sons. But we feel like we'll want it from elsewhere. If God is not your father, then you're often lonely. C.H. Spurgeon said this great preacher, he looks a bit miserable there, doesn't he? Uh, he, he wasn't. You might have heard this quote before from me. He says, if, if you don't have God as your father, this is what you're like. He says, a body of Christians performing religion as a task, that's that kind of achievement thing, groaning along the ways of godliness with faces of dull misery, like slaves who dread the lash, obviously it's from 18th century, 19th century, can have but a negative effect upon those sinners or those unbelievers around them. Who So these Christians 
serve no doubt a hard master. And they are denying themselves this and that. Why should we be like them? If you're, what, what Spurgeon is saying is if you don't understand God is your father, the kind of Christianity, the kind of God that people believe in is going to be the God that demands effort and slavery and self-sacrifice and is miserable and pinched and horrible. And everyone says, I don't want that God. That's what society says, I don't want that God. And we can be stuck in this cycle of slavery. You start by wanting to achieve, to provide yourself with an identity. I've done this or I've done this. And then that flows to, I, whoops, that flows to your identity, your sense of significance is dependent on what you achieve, so you push on. And you get this drivenness. We're driven to achieve more, to make us more acceptable to others and ourselves. And so acceptance is fragile and temporary, and we seek more achievement. You see how Paul's saying we could have this cycle of slavery. If we don't believe God's our Father, you can be, I must achieve, so I'm seen as somebody, and I press on so people will love me. It's exhausting work, being a pick-me, notice-me, affirm-me, fight-my-corner, self-sufficient spiritual orphan. It's exhausting being a performance-driven approval addict, the tireless search for affirmation, the exhausting performance-driven ladder-climbing, the inevitable burnout of self-sufficiency, and the isolating fear of relational disappointment. And our churches are full of them. That's why churches fight each other. That's why churches have votes and, and, and chuck each other out. And, but I talk to guys in the town say, oh, I'm trying to change this, I'm trying to do this, and, and the committee or the deacons are doing this. And it's like, and I think, why? It's because we've got this kind of sense of where we're, not, we're fighting our corner, we want approval. We've just slaves to this cycle. We're to be set free. Paul, writing on the same theme in his letter to the Galatians, said this, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under that law, that sense of trying to prove yourself, to redeem those under that law. Redeeming is costly. The metaphor is of set, paying a price to set someone free. Jesus came and died on the cross and paid a price. His very life, laid down his life to set us free from that cycle of slavery and never feeling at home and always feeling I don't belong and pressing on, pressing on. He paid a great price. When we break bread in a moment, we're going to celebrate that, that Christ paid a price for us so that we could be Father. This is the Father's table today. He paid that price that you might receive the adoption to sonship, belong to the royal family. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a child of God. And since you are a child, God has made you an heir. The place where you stand and the place where you're most secure and you most belong is that time with God where you just know he's your father. I've been reflecting on that verse where it says, God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. Moses was the most powerful, incredible prophet in the Old Testament. And he had a relationship where he spoke to God like a man speaks to his friend. And Jesus said, everybody, 
our Father. It's not just your friend. He's your father. He's your daddy. He's your Abba. There's, wow. And you've got to let that I know it obvious truth drop in your soul. Otherwise, you will show the effects of being a spiritual orphan. Let me just land this out for you. I set it up so I can do it this way, but you start with a different place as a Christian. As if you know Jesus, you start as his son with unconditional grace. We sang it twice. Amazing grace. Two different lines. Amazing grace. Unconditional grace. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He's chosen you. He's for you. He's not unhappy with you. He loves you because of Jesus. He loves you and loves you and loves you. We begin with the knowledge that that we freely are accepted as God's children. That father heart moment for me was really important because although the conference setting was weirding me out, the, the lying on the floor and have God speak, I'm your father, was massively tearful. Because, you know, I'd just been trying, and I still can do it, I can still forget. But if you think, man, I'm bad now, you should have known me before. I was driving and pushing and, come on, let's get it done. And I just, God said, no, how? just be at peace. Just be at peace. No, I'm, you're accepted. And that's where our dependence is. Our lives are lived through dependence on God. We live in the water. Float in the water. Sonship begins, becomes the place that sustains us. No, I'm in the water. I think, you know, worship's so important because it's that moment where you feel like I'm in the water. Just in God's spirit. It's not like God's not here other times he is. But there's a sense where, the, where we gather and worship that's so precious. It's not just song singing. It's saying, no, we want to meet you. Yeah, we want to meet him in the preaching, but we want, to meet him in the, we want to meet him in worship, Lord. And I think sometimes I want to meet him in the water. Don't be like cats. Oh, no, I don't do that kind of thing. I just think, let's be emotional. Not for emotional sake, but because this is an incredibly emotional thing. The God of heaven has accepted us. He loves us. That's where we live. That's where we belong. And that's our identity. Our identity is based not on what we do, but who we are in Christ. It's the most obvious thing that everybody tells you. But you can forget. You go around with a miserable face, working hard, feeling unhappy, grumpy with me, grumpy with your job, grumpy with the world, grumpy, because you've just forgotten that you're a son. And then from that we achieve amazing things. It's not that we don't achieve stuff. We're here to do stuff. We're here to achieve stuff and change the world one life at a time. We want to do that. But it's not that I'm doing that to prove myself. So we've had, what I think, one person become a Christian in this church in a year. And the slavery says, we've got to work harder. We've got to see more. We've got to do that. We've got to do that. Because then I'll feel like God loves me. We've got to say no, that... We want to see people saved. We want to see that. But actually, it's not my identity. Your identity is not based on it. And so you're free from slavery, so you should feel free to invite your friend. Not because you're trying to earn a point or get a brownie point or get you know, God to like you. I invited my friend. No, because you think, what a great place to live. Everyone's looking for belonging. This is the place to belong. Two quotes and we're done. Spurgeon's quote carries on. Bring me a church made of God's children, a company of men and women whose faces shine with their heavenly Father's smile. Isn't that wonderful? Not grumpy, but 
that my family are going to preach it to me. Demaris is going to preach it to me this week, I know. <laughs> preach it to yourself. That we know they're accepted and beloved and are perfectly content with their great Father's will. Place them in the middle of Cheltenham, in the middle of ungodly people, and I guarantee the happy saints will stir jealousy of their peace and joy. That's our missional strategy. We're going to live as sons. Different, not grasping, not fighting a corner. We're going to live as sons. That's our missional strategy. And people go, whoa. When the gospel call is made, do you want to follow Jesus? You've got to understand what's been, what's been said. When the call to come to the table, when the call to come and enjoy Jesus, you've got to understand the call that's been made. It's not a call just to try and get your sins wiped away so you don't feel bad about yourself anymore. It's a much deeper call than that. It's a, an invitation into the very life of God. If God has lived, and God lives forever, as Father, Son, and Spirit. You've heard me say this before, but you should. It's so rich. Father, Son, and Spirit, always loving each other, always delighting in Him. The Father saying to the Son, this is my beloved Son, pouring out His life to Him by the Spirit. The Spirit saying, this is my Father. Don't do anything that he doesn't show me to do. Pouring out his love and delight. We, you, that's the, the inner life of the Trinity. And the gospel invites you in. Paul write, Jesus says this. So it's good to give Jesus the last word. John 14, 16. It says, I will ask the Father. And he will give you another one. Sometimes it says the comforter or the advocate or... Another one, another one like who? Another one like Jesus, who will come alongside to help you, to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. Wouldn't you want another one like Jesus alongside you? Wouldn't you want the life of the risen Jesus in you? That is your inheritance, that's you're invited in to become a Christian. It says the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, it lives in the world of the flesh. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Is he talking about the last coming? Yeah, maybe about the second coming. But he's also talking about Pentecost. He's talking about, I'm going to come back. Another one like me is going to come back. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And on that day, you'll realize that in a life of the Trinity, I am in the Father and you are in me. So we're in the Father because we're in him and he's in us intertwined, dwelling together. This is the gospel that Paul invites us to. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk